August the 7th, 1882 was a fateful day in Pike County, Kentucky, in the eastern part of this great state. It was election day. As was the habit in that day, nobody went to work. Uh, and on that day, everybody went to vote. And also, readily available on those days in the late 19th century was strong drink that had been made, usually up some holler in a fine still. And so as they drank, the uh, festivities would uh, continue. The passions would run hot, and it was decided on that day that old accounts would be settled. So, and my apologies to my dear brother, Caleb McCoy. He usually sits in the balcony. I don't know where he's at this morning. Uh, my people were the Hatfields. My great-grandmother was a Hatfield. And on that day, Ellison Hatfield got in an argument with three sons of Rand McCoy. And Famer jumped him and had a knife and began to stab him. His other two brothers uh, came to his aid. And uh, by the time it was all over, he had picked up a rock and he was ready to respond with the big rock before Famer shot him in the back and he lie dying. Well, immediately Anderson Hatfield uh, apprehended the three sons of Ram McCoy and held them, waiting to see what was going to happen to Ellison. I believe it was the next day Ellison died. And Anderson took the three boys and tied them to a pawpaw bush uh, right outside of Matewan, West Virginia, on the Kentucky side, and he shot and killed them. And it was on in earnest. And what was on in earnest lasted for some 25 years. And it was tragic. It was tragic. My grandmother was born, my, I'm sorry, my great-grandmother was born, she's a Hatfield, in 1892. If you go to when she told the story, when I was a little girl, let's just call it 1902. 1902 is some 15 years after that incident with Ellison. She told me when she was a little girl, at family gatherings, they would pull out the shirt of Ellison Hatfield from that election day in August in 1882. It was thoroughly bloodstained and bore the distinguishing mark of his fleeting mortal life. It was blood-soaked. They would pull it out and pass it around and talk about the fracas with the McCoys. And that shirt had a way of keeping the animus alive. It was, can you imagine a 10-year-old girl hearing these stories and passing around this shirt in some lore? Now, lest you look down upon my family and its habits, all of my family is affected by Adam and his sin. Lest you think that was something unique, is it not true and common that in our own hearts we nurse the hurts and the wounds and the slights that we've been through in some way and keep them alive? It may not be a bloody shirt that we pass around in our heart, but we remember the slight and we call it to mind and we fondle it and we stroke it, and it has a way of keeping that alive. In this story, this history of Esau, this morning we come to a fascinating story that, believe it or not, is 500 
that's a five with two zeros next to it, 500 years after the bowl of red stew in Genesis 25. Genesis 25, fast forward 500 years, and we come to the text before us this morning. It's Numbers chapter 20. Come there with me this morning. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. This is the fourth book of the Old Testament, chapter 20. Edom, E-D-O-M, that's Esau's people. A civilization that developed a nation state that was actually very healthy and developed. We come now to further interaction with Jacob and Esau, albeit 500 years later. But the animus is still alive. If you don't mind the term, the feud is still on. Now, I want to go three different directions this morning. I want to crawl into this history and apprehend it by reading the first 20 verses of Numbers 20. Then we'll be looking across the page at Numbers 21. There's other parts of this story. But we want to crawl into the history. Secondly, we're going to look at the lie. Here's the lie that was believed and is commonly believed, the bitterness, or, or, I'm sorry, the desire for revenge carries no implication. The desire for revenge carries no implication. Nothing could be farther from the truth. That's a lie. We'll face it. And finally, what good is this history from Numbers 19 for my life? So that's where we'll end, and we need to think about this. So here we go. Let's crawl into the history from Numbers 20 and 21. There's always a context. There's always a situation, a life situation, out of which our choices are made. There's a cloth that is there in the fabric of all the circumstances we are facing that we cut out a future. And Satan is a master at stacking up these circumstances that would work against a godly, gospel-like response. Now, notice two things with me. The people of God face eight different waves of struggle. Let me read the, few verse, the first few verses of Numbers 20. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord and he commanded him. 
Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Shall we bring water from you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, a word which means quarreling, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, um, there's a sense in which... There's a crazy movie made several years ago about a, a, a father who decided to take his family to, uh, it was a spoof on Disney World, they were going to Wally World. So they drive all the way across the country, they get there and it's closed. And, 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 and you may feel like this this morning, it was a great disappointment, there's a lot, and, and so th this is the response, the, 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 the father punches the iconic figure who's welcoming people at Wally World. And uh, that, that, that's it. You may feel like that. And the children of Israel felt like this. Notice these eight waves of struggle. Number one, according to chapter 20 and verse 1, they're in the wilderness. Now, by the way, the wilderness is not an easy place. Maybe you feel like you are going through the wilderness this morning. There's a lot of wilderness in this old broken world. Secondly, Miriam dies. Sister of Moses, leader, we see a snapshot of her in Exodus 15. She's hosting the worship party after the Red Sea. Now she also, you know, spoke against the leadership, and we have that episode. But she is a, an influential person among the people. Uh, a couple steps into this wilderness wandering, first steps in the wilderness. Second step, Miriam dies. And there's a pall cast on their experience. We're praying even this week on 10 things to pray for in Access Calvary for those walking through a sense of loss. It's hard. It's hard. Praise God for the ladies simulcast and the 45 ladies who were here yesterday on Saturday to be a part of that. Uh, took a little survey, and uh, the survey was a snapshot of where people are, where these ladies were. It's interesting. Several noted they're experiencing a sense of loss. Life in a broken world takes things away from us. Miriam dies. Number three, it's in the wilderness, in an arid climate, out in the desert. If you think New, New Mexico is dry, go to Israel and get out in the wilderness. Oh, my. It's, uh, it'll give new meaning to dry. So they get out there, and what happens? There's no water. But it's actually worse. They're at a place called Kadesh. Now, Kadesh has a reputation for being an oasis, a place in the wilderness where you could find refreshment. So they think, hey, Kadesh, oh, that'd be a good port of call. Can't wait till the, we get to Kadesh. They get to Kadesh in the wilderness, a promised place of refreshment. And what is it? A place with no water. By the way, have you ever had expectations for how you thought life was going to turn out? And when you got there, it was nothing like the expectations you had for how it was going to turn out? How did you deal with that? You say, well, that's regular fare in a broken world, is it not? We must be realistic. So, number four, astonishingly, the people grumble at the leadership of the people of God. 
Like that's never happened before, you know? Oh, they got mad at Moses. Their response in being annoyed at what they were going through, they start crying out, those two-bit sorry leaders of ours, Moses and Aaron, we had all that good food, the pomegranates, and it was wonderful back in Egypt. Remember, Pharaoh was trying to kill them and took everything. Oh, it was so wonderful back there, and you brought us out here to die. What's wrong with you? Oh, it, Moses exasperatedly says in verse 10, you rebels, he, he just faces them head on. Then their leaders, the iconic leaders, Moses and Aaron, they disobey God. What? Our leaders have clay feet? What? Our leaders face the same issues we do? What? Our leaders fail us? What? They're not going in to the promised land with us because it's very fascinating how God views sin and how we view sin. You say, oh, you know, let's, let's give him a, a bogey. You know, let's, let's, let's give him a mulligan. Hey, let's give him a second chance. Those people would have annoyed me too. And if they wanted water, you know, I, I, he, okay, God said speak to the rock. He struck the rock twice. But God said this. Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. What? You mean our behavior says something out loud to others about what we believe about God? And if we believe that God is holy, it shapes our behavior in some way that becomes a reflection of that? Yeah. And God held Moses accountable, and he does us as well. Now then, we're going to look at this again, but so they come to a place, and they're trying to get over to the king's highway. This is the, the trading thoroughfare, the superhighway. Eisenhower didn't put it in in 56, but the ancient caravans had put the great way, the great highway in, and it was the way to travel. It was a well-groomed path, it was better, and it was just a little bit across the backyard of Edom. So they they knock on Edom's door and say, hey, Edom, look, can we cut through your backyard? We won't drink anything. We won't tear up anything up. And if there's any loss, we'll pay for it. Here's our insurance policy for you. We'll, we'll take care of everything. Wouldn't it be okay if we just, just go across that little sliver and get over to the king's highway? To which they replied, absolutely not. And so they reframe it, restate it, ask them again, and they get the same answer. Absolutely not. What part of no do you not understand? And they brought out a big horde. And remember, Esau's people, given 500 years of development, they had a really strong army. And so they, they won't let them in. Now, by the way, one of the glories, and there are many, of the gospel of Jesus Christ at work in our life is that we can face waves of rotten stuff looking unto the Lord and find grace to take the next steps. You say, Eric, I'm not facing eight bad things that are tough, but I'm facing four, or I'm facing two, or I'm facing one big elephant, or I'm facing four. Let us be found taking the next steps, looking unto Jesus, finding his grace, and finding our joy in him, and not smooth sailing in the Audubon of a good life. 
Now, secondly, this crisis intensified with an encounter with Esau's people. Look at verses 14 through 20. This is the ask. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Remember, this is Moses, a part of Jacob's family, sending word to Edom, a part of Esau's family. Thus says, notice how he couches it, your brother Israel. You know all the hardships that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through your field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right or the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through lest I come out with a sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus, Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. It was a reasonable request. It was diplomatically offered. It was layered with assurances. It was even, uh, we'll, we'll provide restitution. If you think we've hurt you in any way, we'll provide it. Verse 18, you shall not pass through lest I come out. He restates it in verse 20. No, the shortcut is foiled. Now the slight was costly for Israel. Can you imagine a group that size who now have to, instead of going just across the backyard, have to swoop way around, and it's in the wilderness around. Uh, sparse water, dry, terrible. And it cost them a lot. Could have made life so much easier. It made a bad situation worse when cousin Edom said, don't you dare go across our backyard. Now, what about the lie? Desires for revenge carry no implications. One great argument against revenge is the destruction that revenge brings to us when we harbor it in our own heart. It's self-defeating. Now, let's say the obvious. Revenge is not a godly impulse. For our good, God prescribed the way of Christ and has called us to follow him. Do you not remember that Jesus on the cross, Jesus being crucified, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Stephen being stoned, don't hold this against them. Extraordinary. This is the way of Christ. Vigilante justice on our perceived terms is a sinful response to hurt and sin. Now the Apostle Paul picks up one fragment of Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35 and he quotes it in Romans chapter 12. And you have to be really careful how you read it how you understand it, and how you apply it. Vengeance is mine. Many stop reading there. Yeah, this, this is my life. What's your life verse? You know? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. It has three parts. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. 
says the Lord. Now, vengeance is mine. The question, of course, is who's mine? My mind or the Lord's mind? Of course it is the Lord's mind. That vengeance belongs to him. And then we're encouraged while we patiently wait and offer ourselves unto the Lord and treat our enemies just the way Jesus, uh, from the passage read this morning, has taught us to treat them. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. What does that middle mean? It means we can give vengeance to the Lord and not have to worry about it. It means he will take care of it. And what's fascinating is his repay is always right and just and good. Our repay, we get outsized vision of what other people should get. Remember James and John and, and you know, just passionate guys from Galilee. Lord, let's call down thunder on them right now. As if they were one of those army, uh, you know, Air Force guys with the army going across the ground, calling in the coordinates so that the kinetic activity would hit in the right place. Let's, let's burn them up right now. Isn't it true that we have those impulses and have those thoughts from time to time? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Any spirit of revenge or urges of vengeance here today that God is calling out? that God is inviting us to offer to him. Let these words sink in. If you're hurt this morning, if you've been bruised this morning, if you've been sinned against this morning in some way, and you're hurting, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, the second thought under facing this lie is that unwittingly, revenge creates self-inflicted wounds. It seems intuitive. You hit me, I'll hit you. It seems, you know, yeah, isn't that right, Eric? That's kind of a natural human reflex. And it's like, yeah, I'll feel better about it when it's done. The posture that Edom takes toward Israel will not serve them well over time. They were around to gloat over the fact that Babylon carried them off 700 years further from this point. But they thought it is in our best interest not to respond to our cousins. And so we won't respond. And this will really help us out as a nation. By the way, Edom's gone. And Israel's still going. Uh, you have to watch the end games where this stuff takes us. Israel became larger as a nation, more dominant. The roots of bitterness in response to hurt will maim us not the people who have hurt us. You've heard it said, bitterness is the poison that we drink thinking we're going to hurt our enemies. No, and have you ever been around a person who is bitter? You know they've been hurt. And life hurts. In a broken world, life hurts. And no doubt, the crowd this size this morning, there are people here who are hurting. Others have taken advantage of you. Others have hurt you in treacherous dealings. You haven't got your fair share here in some of the moments that you've lived. I have a friend who, he was super close to a guy about 40 years ago. And they're not only not super close now, they don't even speak. 
And if, if I talk to him about his friend, I can tell passion wells up and is stirred within them. I mean, it's, it's still alive. It's still right there. I, it's not a bloody shirt, but there's still stuff being passed around in his own heart that's fueling it. It's as if we have an infinite capacity to incubate animus and bitterness in our hearts. It, it's not helpful. It's very destructive in ways that we are not even conscious to, in ways other people can see that we don't recognize. Well, finally, then, how should we live? How should we live? What does this history of Esau and Esau's lie have to do with us? Got to go to work tomorrow. I'm trying to raise my kids. I'm trying to work with the work group. I'm trying to have my marriage work. Three thoughts. Number one, life is a mess on many fronts in a broken world. And maybe you came to place your faith in Christ because somebody sold you a bill of goods that sounded like this, come to Jesus, then you'll never face any difficulty or problem again because you have Jesus and the Lord is our shepherd and we shall not be in want of anything. By the way, the Lord is our shepherd when we come to Jesus and we are not in want of any good thing. But that's not the same as we will never face the brunt edge of the curse of God and sin on this broken world because it inevitably comes. And it hurts. And we get smashed. And the Lord in the middle of our being smashed shows us delights of his character that we would never have seen if it hadn't been. It's an eight-headed monster of circumstance that surrounds Israel in this moment. Life in a broken world is hard. Job 5-7. Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward in a fire. Maybe you're here this morning. Your church family here at Calvary wants to bear your burdens. You don't have to go it alone. You say, Eric, why do we have the form of ministry that meets from 915 to 1015 called adult Bible fellowship classes? Why do we have that? Why do we have Ignite for our high school? Why do we have Connect for junior high? Why do we have Jump Junior for sixth graders? Why do we have Disciple Kids? We are trying to create communities that wrap around each other in support and love and promote gospel living by pointing the way forward in following Jesus Christ. We need each other. One of the most painful things of the coronavirus crisis is it separated us from each other. Appreciated Jason accenting the fact that I know we're all policing ourselves and choosing our levels of engagement, and we have some people who've chosen to go back online, and we, we love having you with us online. We look forward to when you are back with us in person. There's no substitute for being in person, although we're working hard to have a quality experience online. Eric, we're going through it. Then you throw in the coronavirus crisis. Hey, we get it. Let's bear each other's burdens. Let's do something all together. 1 Peter 5, 7. Let's all simultaneously cast our care upon the Lord, for he cares for us. And these forums to bring people together are designed to be such an impetus in our midst. Secondly, nursing bitterness along is a real threat after being hurt. Hurt is real. Bitterness happens and we have to deal with it. Constantly, the enemy of our soul loves to spread seeds of bitterness in our heart. 
pour his miracle grow on it and get us to nurse along self-pity. Nothing is more destructive. While bitterness is a natural reflex, we receive this reflex from Adam, and God has called us to put off the old and put on the new and develop a new reflex of forgiving our enemies and being good to those who've wronged us and praying for those who despitefully use us. Scripture warns against every root of bitterness that takes hold. Are there any roots taking hold today that God wants to bring out? Has God brought you today here to weed the garden of your heart of such roots? My father and my wife went through cancer, both of them different kinds of cancer, so they had a different uh, first part of the word, but the second part of the word was the same in its name. It ended with sarcoma. Both surgeons said the same thing. The way to treat sarcoma is to cut it out. And so we shall cut it out. The way to treat bitterness is not to ignore it, is not to say we don't face the threat of bitterness. It's to cut it out. It's to give it up. It's to release it. It's to let it go. You say, wait, 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 wait. That seems to belittle the depth of the hurt. Oh, the hurt is that deep. It is that real. It is that painful. And God is that good. To exactly as ought to be, perfectly, deal with the issue. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. So let me ask you, are you passing around any shirts in your own heart and mind maybe even unknown to others, nursing along some wound that has hurt you so deeply. I'm so sorry you've been hurt. And Jesus is a healer, and his healing ways are surprising because the best way to healing is to give up the bitterness and hurt to him. Finally, peace emerges after total forgiveness is given. I love the story of Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Paul. Formerly named Saul. <laughs> they get ready for the second missionary journey, and Barnabas said, that son of encouragement who was always cheering for others, he said, hey, I'll tell you what, let's take Barnabas with us. Paul said, we're not taking that no account. Halfway through the last trip, he left and quit. I'm done with him. And they came to what is described in Acts chapter 15, strong disagreement. They separated. I love 2 Timothy 4.11. Some of the last words that Paul wrote, he says this about John Mark, who he'd said, whatever you do, we're not bringing him. 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me in ministry. Get Mark, I love that. There's something so gloriously liberating when two warring parties give it up and make peace. It didn't help Edom to have this posture toward Israel. And it doesn't help us. There's something very holy about letting go. In the aftermath, peace breaks out. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war we created with our sin that separated us from God was resolved in the death of Jesus Christ. 
when our sin was placed on him so we could be forgiven. Do you know Christ as your Savior? You can have peace with God through knowing Jesus Christ and receiving him into your life. And God resolved it on Good Friday. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. There's a difference between a raging storm and Lake Placid. Peace. God, does God want to divvy out any peace this morning as we release others from their debts? It honors God and his forgiving heart. Think of him. Be kind one to another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. How do we keep a God-honoring posture of readiness forgive? to forgive when we've been hurt and sinned against. My great-grandmother's family passed around Ellison's shirt to keep it going on. In our own minds, I think what we need to do is, as it were, pass around the blood-stained garments of Jesus Christ from Good Friday. And as we're passing those around, we are reminded that this was the cost to bring us to be forgiven that God was willing to pay. And in fondling that garment and in passing it around, it's not animus that wells up in our soul. It's gratitude to God for forgiving us in Christ. Not only gratitude, but what wells up in our soul is an eagerness as we fondle that cloth an eagerness to forgive those who have hurt us and a readiness to help even our enemies. May God give us grace to be such a church, such a people. Father, it's easy to preach. It's harder to live. But as we see these dimensions of our own heart played out in this history, Lord, work in our lives. Search us and know us. What do we need to say to you in prayer? Whom do we need to forgive and release this morning? What hurt do we need to entrust to you? What do we need to be made conscious of by the Holy Spirit of actions we are taking that really come from a heart that's been hurt? Oh God, heal us. Show us your heart. And have your heart overwhelm our own sinful, petty heart that loves to keep score and lash out at others. Hear us when we pray. Lord, what are you asking us to do right now? We're going to respond by praying to you in our own hearts. Lord, thanks for having a forgiving heart. Reproduce after your own kind in our own lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing before.